1: Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, the podcast I gave up trying to come up with clever ways to introduce like months ago. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Every week I tell you about rebels and weirdos and all the folks in history that I think are cool or at least interesting. Like Caitlin Durante, who isn't in history, is more like in the room right now, virtual, I'm room. in the present. Yeah.
4: And I am a present.
1: Yeah. And a I am gift. a
4: presence. Wow, what am I saying? I'm tired. No, yeah. And
1: probably <laughs> and soon we'll be president. Uh how are True. you, Caitlin Durante? Who Future are you?
4: President, Caitlin Durante. Um hmm. How am I? I'm good. I'm not spitting up blood. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Still. So I've done a good yeah. job. Uh I am. Did you also ask who I am?
1: <laughs> yes.
4: Okay, okay, just wanted to check. You know, I'm a person. I'm just a person out here living in the
1: world. Great. (laughs) Just a person. And we also have our Sophie with us, who is named Sophie. Hi, Sophie. How are
3: you? I'm okay. I'm living life. Excellent. Mm -hmm.
1: Ian is our audio engineer on Woman Roto 3 Music. Yes, she did. This week... We are talking about tram printers and we're grouchy because they're in a union that's racist, even though a lot of them are fighting against that racism. And I don't know when they won. And someone will tell me, and I'll be happy that they tell me. Anyway, go listen to part one, both of you, Sophie and Caitlin. Oh, okay.
4: Bye. Yeah. Okay. See ya. Uh
1: And we are back. Okay. And now, (laughs) now that you all listen to part one, we can talk about part two. Hell yeah. So. Our apprentice has just become a journeyman and joined the International Typographical Union. The word journeyman and craft unions and guilds and shit is literal. It's like wandering journeyman person who goes on journeys. And this was seen as an important part of becoming good at any given trade. How can you be the master of a trade if you haven't been in a ton of different shops and different places that do things differently, right?
5: Hmm.
1: And I find that really interesting. It's like, Well, I spent my 20s wandering. Of course, I find this interesting. So printers were expected to travel. Some caught the bug and stayed traveling and became tramps. Some learned some skills and then settled down and joined the Home Guard, choosing a pension and stability over flexibility and freedom. What would you all pick?
4: Whoa. I would would probably journey for a while. Actually... I would probably just do what I do now, which is, like, journey some of the time and then have a home base that I would turn to and stay at, you know, fair majority of the time. But then I'd be like, I'm bored. I need to go to Amsterdam and look Mm -hmm. at graffiti.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Good callback. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) You learned about that by going back and listening to part one, so I appreciate that. (laughs)
4: Uh Yes. So I don't know if that's an option to just be uh, like know, part-time journeyman, okay. part-time
1: sitting around or. I bet you could do it. And that is how comedy works, right? You finish your apprenticeship. Yes. What time did you start your apprenticeship and how much piss was involved?
4: I was, I was the age of 12 mm-hmm. uh, as was, as is standard. Yeah. Um, In the comedy. A lot Guild. of piss. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they use they use uh, pee to clean the stages. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> clean your mouth after bad jokes.
4: Exactly. Yeah. Some people yeah. Are like here's a bar of soap, clean out your mouth. But comedians yeah. do it with their own pee. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and so I was an, an apprentice for like probably three to four years, mm-hmm. and then. Um, then I became a a, a, journey, f- uh, a journeyman. Journey them. A ju- yeah, I just want to say journeyman comedy. Them. Yeah, it's good.
1: Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'll be here all night. <laughs> and whereas I came in the side door. Okay, so the system has a lot of advantages, right? This like journeyman system, the tramp system, all of that. If workers went on strike in one place, they could go find other jobs while they were on strike somewhere. And, you know, you go wander away. And so strike funds don't need to be quite so large as they might need to be otherwise because the workers aren't as reliant upon the one individual income. Mm -hmm. It also meant that itinerant workers were always available to support any other labor action that needed bodies. And it, it stitched together a social framework of the union as well. Uh, because there were always people in your shop, whether they traveled or not, with stories and news from elsewhere. Whether you travel or not, right, there's always going to be people showing up with news and showing up with different stories and different ways mm-hmm. that things that things are being done in different places. It also is kind of the main way that the Home Guard would get a chance to take days off because 19th century, not famously good for working conditions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm very biased about this uh, because I sort of spent my early 20s living a tramp activist life um, where a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of us would go and travel around to wherever any given political struggle that like needed support, needed people to show up and then like would go wander on. And I think that interweaving a traveling culture of tramps with folks who stay put and keep things consistent is a very good way to build a strong social movement Mm -hmm. as compared to like often it's presented as, as this dichotomy, right? Where like, no, everyone must stay put and do hard activist work and never go anywhere. Or all that matters is wandering around freely or whatever, you know?
5: hmm
1: I don't know. I and, and just to, I like it because it's both individualistic and community-minded at once. Like, because the the printers are free-spirited roamers, right? And they do whatever they want in a community-built, community-maintained system of solidarity that they participate in and uphold. mm mm-hmm. um, And I feel like we're always presented with this idea that, like, doing what's good for the individual is, like, counter to what's good for the community. And... I just think that's a, a shitty dichotomy that we should avoid whenever possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my little philosophical aside.
4: I agree. Thanks. I can't be doing good work when I'm tired yeah. and hungry.
1: Yeah, totally. And like going off and experiencing your best life and seeing the world and all that stuff. Like, I mean, I whatever, anyway. <laughs> and the way that people would see the world in this context is that they would tramp. This was not a like, High class way of travel, specifically most of them rode the rails. Most of them rode freight trains in classic American hobo form, and but they traveled however they could. Some never left the big cities that they were in, and they would like tramp by streetcar from job to job. Mm. Uh, there was a whole crew called the Missouri River Pirates who rode rafts around the Missouri River, and they would like just catch catfish all day and be hobos, and then like show up in print for a while, get a paycheck, go drink the paycheck. Go back to catching okay. catfish. Others caught rides on on freighters and worked literally all over the world, not necessarily directly through the union, but operating the same kind of concept, just showing up and being a printer, because it is a skilled, it is a complicated, skilled job that mm-hmm. is in demand all over the world, because there's one form of technology that is now being used all over the world about how to print.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: I started by like typing out the list of places that American and Canadian tramp printers would end up. Uh, But I stopped because the only continent that I didn't include was Antarctica on the list.
5: Hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And they're a wild bunch. They they sleep in barns. They sleep on the floor of the printer's office where they're working. They would go drink the pub dry. They'd smuggle booze into work. And they'd have, like, fancy, like, weird tricks where they'd be like, oh, this is my medicine. And they'd, like, have dyed all of their alcohol, like, funny colors and shit. (laughs) Okay. And... They they weren't a, not all of them were the same. Some of them were totally sober, right? But they had this reputation that they overall earned of being rowdy and drunk and still really good at their jobs. Okay. And they also had a reputation for being incredibly well-read and literate, for remembering the most odd and arcane texts, and that they would, like, stay up late and hang out and swap stories, not just of, like, I don't know, drinking and wandering, but also opinions about politics and poetry and literature and, like, all of the, like, fancy stuff that these poor people shouldn't be talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And they, a lot of them spoke a ton of languages and would quote all kinds of, like, famous fancy people. They would, like, stay up late talking to the editor, they'd stay up late at the bar, or they'd stay up late in hobo jungles, which is... um. I literally no idea how common this type of terminology is. Like, do you know what a hobo jungle is?
4: Mm-mm. No.
1: When you're riding freight trains, which to just continue to self-insert as much as possible in order so that everyone thinks I'm cool. Mm-hmm. My granddad rode freight, rode freight trains in the Great Depression, and then I rode freight trains in the early aughts. I wasn't very good at it. I have no idea how good my granddad was. I never talked to him about it before he died.
5: Mm.
1: But so hobo jungles still exist. It is the place where everyone sleeps and hangs out while they're waiting to catch a freight train. And they're mm. basically like encampments. Uh, mm. And they're often in little patches of trees next to train tracks near the, near the yard, near the train yard. Mm. And whoever is there, they might cook together. They might share food and drink and coffee and cigarettes. Um, they might tell terrible jokes. They also like getting people getting into fights and stuff too. It's not like perfect and utopian, but it's like interesting, mm. right? And a lot of shared camaraderie. Mm-hmm. One historian, Paul Fisher, talking about the tramp printers, said, he said, Mr. to no man expected no man to accord him the same title. Had he been more democratic, he would have been an anarchist. Because it wasn't necessarily like a political position that they were like this, you know? Mm-hmm. John Edward Hicks, who was a tramp printer himself, said that a tramp printer didn't own anything, never expected to, and wouldn't have known what to do with it if he had. Like, there's one story I read about... Um, a tramp printer like wins a bar in a card game against the bar owner. Yeah. And so then he just makes all the drinks free for everyone all night. And then he gives the bar back to the bar owner. Because huh. he's like, well, I don't want a bar. I'm a fucking tramp. I want to travel. Yeah. Um, I like that story. Yeah. And the only tools they traveled with was a union card, the card, the traveler's card that said, I'm in good standing with the union. I pay my dues. I know how to print. Um, a makeup rule, which is like a tiny little metal ruler that they use to separate lines of type, and line gauges of various lengths. These were like the personal tools that they carried. Everything else was supplied at the job. Mm -hmm. They also brought with them quadrats, which are little squared pieces of type that are used for spacing. And each one had a a mark called a nick on one side. Mm -hmm. And they would basically gamble. It was just, I mean, it's basically hot dice. Like, hobos today and by today i mean 20 years ago when i was hanging out more with folks who did this i mm-hmm. uh, would play a game called hot dice all the time where you just have six sided dice and you play this nonsensical game mm-hmm. and so the tramp printers would roll their quads and whoever had most of their quads laying land nick side up would win sometimes they'd win like who's buying the beer later you know sometimes it was like who gets the nice or the loser buys the beer And sometimes it would be like, who gets the nice job in the office today and who gets the shitty job? I feel like this is like kind of their rock, paper, scissors, right? Mm -hmm. They were like, all right, who has the piss job and who has the... Who's
4: got to clean with piss today?
1: Yeah, and that was the winner because that was the best job. Mm
4: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And a journalist at the time referred to them as broke poets with no coins, but scraps of poetry in their pockets, which they would get drunk and recite. Franklin M. White, a printer, said that they, quote, sprinkled knowledge and literacy as enthusiastically as Johnny spread his apple seed. I have met tramp printers who could recite Shakespeare, Wilde, Chaucer, Gibbon, and then et cetera, a bunch of other names I actually don't even recognize because I don't know all the 19th century names. Mm-hmm. And Caitlin, have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons?
4: I have not. Okay, actually. well, it sounds keep... like something I would do, but I haven't. Sophie? Yes.
1: I would say that these are basically, they're, they're Dungeons and Dragons bards. There's a class now, in the game. how do you explain that in Wanderous.
3: Paddington 2 format for Caitlin?
1: <laughs> okay, so there's a bear okay. named Paddington.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's some movies based on him.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm.
5: And
1: probably, in the first one, he's mostly in one place. In the second one, he travels around. I'm Actually, like, I mean... Am I right? Am I right? There... Look, i it works with Home Alone and a bunch of other movies, so I assume it's going to work with this. And five, well, no, five The traveling third
4: act of Paddington mm-hmm. Two takes place on a steam train. All right. Yeah. A traveling circus train, if you will, okay. and um, there's and high and there's a lot of hijinks.
1: All right. Is there one character who uh travels all the time and reads poetry?
4: <sighs> um can we make one up? Yes, that would be <laughs> Paddington's cousin.
1: Jobo the Hobo.
4: I was gonna say Baddington. Okay, oh. no,
1: Baddington's better. <laughs> uh-huh. And so yeah, that's yes. Yeah. So it's just like Baddington from Paddington too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the best way to, to for everyone out there okay. to understand. Uh-huh. Thank you. Love yeah. that some bars they would show up and they'd pull out their measuring stick okay they'd pull out their their measuring <laughs> stick they'd put it on the, the bar and the barkeep would let them a stranger open a tab because they were also known for paying their fucking tabs they were good for it and there was like a pool hall in Chicago called Jack O'Brien's that let tramps sleep on the pool tables. Jack Unless O'Brien's? People... I know.
3: That's <laughs> funny. <laughs>
1: Margaret, do you
3: get Do you get the joke? I don't get Jack it, no. Jack O'Brien of the Daily Zeitgeist?
1: Oh, yeah. It's that guy's <laughs> pool table. Yeah. That's
3: so yeah. funny.
1: Yeah, um, another vampire who... uh Well, actually, I don't know the means of Jack's immortality. Vampirism mm. is always the first one that comes to mind.
3: <laughs> it works. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I, 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 I get it. He's a yeah. vampire, sure. He's a vampire, sure.
1: Yeah, and let... Hobos, uh, tramp printers, sleep on the pool tables cool. or under the pool tables if people wanted to play. Hmm. Um, I like the idea of going into the pool hall and like someone's like, fine. And it's like someone who's better at a job than I'll ever be at mine is just sleeping on the pool table and is like, fine, <laughs> and then just starts sleeping underneath the pool table while I play pool. <laughs> Pretty cool. Like all good tramps, Caitlin, they did lots of crime. mm. Yes, uh, now we're talking. Some of it was printing-related crime, uh, specifically counterfeiting <laughs> with something that... I was going to say, like, plagiarism? or <laughs> yeah, Probably that, too, to be honest. There's a lot of, like, ways that people made money in early printing just by being like, oh, yeah, no, uh, I'm authorized to sell this best-selling book. Uh, Buy Twilight from me, Margaret. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wrote it. Twirl- Lord. That's my book. Yeah, oh, good. Love that for good. you. It's about vompours. <laughs> so, anyway, okay. So they they played plagiarized money, mm-hmm. and other times they just did regular crime, like stealing stuff to sell it, or pretending they were priests and giving speeches, and then passing the hat uh, was another way that they would make money. Nice. One tramp printer, actually, several tramp printers did this, but one tramp printer whose name I got did this, when Tramp Printer was Magnificent Maureen of the Flying Trapeze because eventually she quit typesetting to join the circus. Okay. There was a legendary king of the Tramp Printers, Peter Bartlett Lee. And legendary in this way that like traveling cultures, and I think like lots of subcultures do this, where someone's like legendary only within this circle, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I doubt this was a household name to any degree, but any, right. you know, jungle or whatever. You probably knew people who had knew of Peter Bartlett Lee, who wore a tailcoat and a wide brimmed hat, who had wa- who wandered the country looking for his lost wife because he'd served in the Union Army and he came home to find no trace of his wife. To be real, mm-hmm. she he probably sucked and she just took off, but whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and he spent the rest of his life wandering before he died in Nebraska, buried under a stone that reads, And thus we die still searching.
6: Oh,
4: that's sad
1: i know another tramp printer was uh the duke of wellington uh he spent okay. the 1920s tramping in arizona he was like the youngest son of some estate in england right uh yeah. called wellington and he was the youngest son so imagine his surprise when basically like all of his older brothers and his dad die and they like call him home and like are like you got to go be the duke of wellington now so he goes <laughs> home and uh, the Estates in terrible shape. And so he kind of just like fucks off right back to the US to keep Trump printing because <laughs> he's nice. like, fuck this, I like it more. <laughs> and then there were a whole bunch of other like fake nobility around as well, like people being like, I'm the Prince of Wales or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just because they're like, whatever. That's not a real thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the.
4: Wow, Sophie taking a hard stance against the Prince of Wales.
1: Yeah. What do you have against Wales?
3: Nothing. I have the fact that they have to have a prince that isn't actually from Wales, that is the prince of Wales, that is uh, now the king of England named. Uh, oh. Um, and he's despicable. And uh, mm. I'm done. Yep. But I got well, it out. It felt good. It felt really good. Good. Um, you know I... who
1: else is lying? Ooh. Is advertised. You know who <laughs> has a monetary incentive to lie, but obviously isn't lying to you? dear listener it's the podcast the products and services that support this podcast
0: Bean Dad The Dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey I do too 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me Jamie Loftus where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day who were they?
7: Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development,
1: And we're talking about how Margaret forgot that the King of England was the Prince of Wales. Uh, <laughs> you forgot, but I didn't even know in the first
4: place. I, I don't understand I who any of these that. people are or where they're from. So,
1: <laughs> well, do you want to hear about Muskogee Red?
4: Yeah, I do.
1: Well, he was legendary in that same hobo way, where you're like legendary only amongst the the tramps. He, he was he was legendary for just being. An old hobo who went everywhere, did everything, always drunk. Spent he. Had, people were like, he's worked in every printer's office in the West, and he's been in every jail in the West. One time, apparently, he burned down the jail he was in because he didn't want to be in it anymore. <laughs> Hell yeah. And another time, someone thought they found him dead, and a paper he'd worked on before wrote a touching obituary about how he'd been found dead with half a bottle of whiskey because they really liked him and they're like oh poor guy he died we'll write this obituary Muskogee Red shows up holding a copy of the obituary and he's like you know this is touching but I'm clearly not dead and you should have known it wasn't me because the bottle was only half empty hmm because he because he drank a lot what a legend I know exactly Um, I love that like so many just different like things are like I'm that person's legendary because they can consume toxins (laughs) so many toxins I've never <laughs> seen that person le- without toxins
4: <laughs> that's the legacy i want to leave behind
1: yeah which toxin
4: you know i'm i'm partial to whiskey myself oh okay okay um i like a good tequila as well yeah and don't forget about white claws the the most refreshing toxin of them all
1: white claws are unfair in how not like alcohol they are it's True, actually like they get immoral. The job done. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> the ITU wasn't the only union with tramp workers. This whole concept, the journeyman system, and also like even just like the travelers' card, where people could go around and work in any union shop they wanted, was actually mm-hmm. like fairly common throughout the 19th century. I started reading this whole book that's about why that's bad. Um, because it Mm. something, something Marxism, something, something undermining solidarity in the working class, something, something. And I was really annoyed by it. (laughs) Uh So I didn't read it. That doesn't really make me sound like a very good, trustworthy source. I read the parts about it, about the International Typographer Typographical Union.
4: Okay, that's important. But
1: a lot of different unions would have this kind of system. The Cigar Makers Union was another notoriously tramp-heavy union. And it's also a strong union that a lot of union leaders came out of, which is my argument to that book that I can't really argue against because I didn't finish, mm. is that, uh, yeah, Samuel Gompers came out of the Cigar Makers Union, and like uh, he's a union leader guy. But the ITU is one of the most itinerant work, uh, unions. In the 1880s, something like 8,000 printers any given year were tramping around. By 1892, more than 65% of the union took a traveling card, So 18,000 people that year were like tramp printers because there's just so much print work available. Okay. And so it's also worth pointing out, as far as I can tell, and this number would fluctuate constantly, but most of the time in the 19th century, it seems like the ITU was doing about 20% of the paid printing in the US. So this wasn't like all of the printing. And I think that that Even I'm sure they wanted to be wider than that. I'm glad they didn't get wider than that because they were fucking racist. Right. And, but yeah, so this wasn't like all printers, right? Uh, This wasn't like the thing that every printer was doing. However, it was a specific system um, that should have been cooler than it was.
4: So are they going to like, just work at like a new, they, they tram for a bit, they show up in town and then what do they do? They go to a newspaper, they go to like a publishing
1: house for like literature,
4: yeah. like what, what kind of...
1: So I think basically anywhere, but I think in the newspapers were like where it was in the most in demand because it was like the fastest turnaround. It was like every day sure. you're doing a new thing. There actually yeah. used to be more newspapers per city than there are now. mm. And because it was, like, so easy to do. And what you would do is you have your traveler's card, which you actually have to apply for. It's not just, like, once you're in the union, you can just wander totally freely. When you're like, hey, I want to travel, they're like, okay. And I don't know whether they, like, limit it per year, basically trying to make sure that there's enough work for everyone or what. But then you Mm -hmm. show up in town, you go to a print shop, and the print shop's boss has nothing to do with the hiring because it's a closed shop and the union controls it. Mm -hmm. And they're like, look, as long as we get the job done... We control who prints here. And it helped that they were all really fucking good at what they did, right? And they were like faster than uh, most other people and stuff. And so you go and then you put, it's called a sub board for a substitute. And you put your like card in or whatever, you put your name down. And then they basically say like, okay, we we have extra work for this many people today. Or like someone who's in the home guard is like sick. I would love to take a day off. Like I'm going home. And tramp printers would work, um, you were allowed to work for up to a month at a place without, if you wanted to work more than a month, I believe you had to like apply to be like, okay, I want to be a regular printer here. Got it. Yeah.
4: So they're just like temping, they're just like freelancing. Yeah, I mean like... it's,
1: yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the traveling nurse thing that happens in some ways. mm Because mm-hmm. uh, things that people always need, healthcare and... Printed propaganda Mm
5: -hmm.
1: or whatever, mass media, the main mass (laughs) media at the time. So, for a while in about the mid 1800s, about half the typesetters in the US were women. Out West, in particular, the old rules didn't apply and more women ran papers or edited. More than 200 papers out West in the second half of the 19th century were run by women. Hmm. And the book I'm drawing from here the most is, is Tramp Printers by Charles Overbeck, that I mentioned last episode to quote from Trent printers about women editing papers out West. The female editors of the West varied from Catherine Bag, a 13-year-old publisher of The Bug Hunter in Tombstone, Arizona, to renowned suffragists.
4: 13-year-old?
1: Pr- yeah. Uh, what was it? <laughs> the Bug Hunter. I think that basically, it's like when I had a zine when I was a teenager.
4: I uh, got it. Okay.
1: You know, so, so Catherine Bag ran The Bug Hunter, and I think it was like mm. probably like, these are the bugs I found. You know I love that. I know. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. I mean I included this quote because I like that part so much. <laughs> to renowned suffragist Abigail Scott Dunaway in Oregon. You know, so it was like ran the gamut of um mm-hmm. of women printing. There was also a couple all women shops. The Bohemian Women's Publishing Company of Chicago is all women. They ran a popular weekly and employed fifteen women and girls, and they had all women shops, probably because men were treating them. Like garbage,
4: mm, and like so, the piss that they were cleaning things with.
1: Yeah. Oh, but you have to be respectful of the piss. You understand? Anyway, sorry. Uh, yeah, that was bad analogy. <laughs> no, no, I made it worse. <laughs> but all things surely come to an end. Not this mm. episode yet, but the era mm-hmm. that we're talking about. So you've got the tramp printing thing where everyone is sitting type by hand all day and drinking and reciting poetry all night and riding freight trains and whatever. And they've been working the same machines that have been around since Gutenberg. And then hot metal typesetting came around. The most famous mm-hmm. and long-lasting of these machines is the line, linotype machines, which were invented in 1884, which uh, does several lines of type, thus linotype mm-hmm. at a time. And the operator pecks away at a, a typewriter, basically, which assembles metal forms, which are then cast into lines of type. Thus, hot, hot metal type setting. And linotypes were the main things that people used until the nineteen seventies. Uh, had like literally in the eight, in the nineteen sixties, some places were still using eighty-year-old machines because once again, this mm-hmm. technology didn't change too fundamentally for a, basically until computers came around.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And the linotype machine killed a lot of jobs. Uh, hand type setting was, was over. But it didn't kill the union or the culture. And I, at this point, the union is not being evil. And the reason it didn't kill the, the union is because these machines are fucking monstrous. The mm-hmm. linotype machines have 7,200 moving parts. Oh, my. As one printer, Andrew Steves, put it, quote, while no one action is particularly complex in isolation, their combination in this whirring, chattering, 3,200-pound hulk of moving parts with its pot of molten metal sloshing around at 550 degrees Fahrenheit can be downright intimidating at first glance, or on <laughs> second, or third.
4: Mm, I'll say, yeah.
1: Yeah. So the union printers learned how to use them faster than inexperienced workers were able to. Basically, like as soon as these things started to show up in the shop, the union printers were like, all right, it's ours. And more importantly than learning how to use them, they learned how to fix them, which the bosses definitely did not know how to do. And Mm. since printing was even more centralized than before, the workers came out of it with more power than before. So, sorry, bosses. Mm -hmm. Folks who didn't want or couldn't learn the new machines uh, often headed west where Linotype took decades to reach. But change was inevitable. And a ton of printers just got real salty and were like, fuck all this and quit printing. Mm. Join the circus, et cetera. Yeah, totally. Circus is always hiring, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always seem very easy in stories to run away and join the circus. But I always, like, as a kid, right. I was like, doesn't that involve, like, being really good at something?
4: Yeah, you have to be, like, an acrobat. Yeah. Or something. I was referring to that one specific No, I know. Who... Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay.
4: Yeah, Maureen. <laughs> but also, yeah, I'm like, how can it... you just, like, you've got to have s- skills. I know. Taming lions?
1: Yeah. Others? I, yeah. I, I don't wow. know.
4: Clowning? Anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. No matter how far the Tramp printers ran, ran out west, by the time of the Great Depression, linotype machines were ubiquitous. And the first golden age of the Tramp printer was over, more or less. The The new printers, even the Tramps, were, were less wild and less driven by wanderlust overall. But the linotype machine... Printer wages went up dramatically because profits went up at the shops. The machines were stored in less dingy parts of the building. And basically, the union printer's life got better. Life expectancy went up again, which is... From 41 to Yeah, I don't have the next number, but like, yeah, like, (laughs) um, you know, incremental change, positive. Mm -hmm. As long as you can get... If we could just get life expectancy to, like, pace our aging, Mm -hmm. that would work well for me. And I think this is kind of interesting to me because like most of the time unions, you don't hear about unions adapting to new technology incredibly well, you know, mm-hmm. and like one day I'm going to do an episode about the Luddites who weren't actually mad at the concept of technology. They were mad at the concept of ending the their way of life that provided them the food that they ate,
5: mm-hmm.
1: you know, but but the union conquered this new technology, which is funny because like the bosses were like, like, hey, hey, this will finally break the union. And it, it didn't. And partly because it was a giant machine with a pot full of 550 degree molten lead. (laughs) If you ran them at speed for too long, the melt pot could overheat and a bunch of molten metal would shoot out at the operator. And one printer said, quote, it didn't burn you, it cooked you. That's what they called a squirt.
4: Oh, sexy.
1: Yeah.
3: Fascinating.
1: Yeah.
4: (sighs) Damn.
1: But... Now I want to talk about two influential tramp printers. Both are actually pretty I'm cool. Ready. Stamp of, they get the stamp of cool people did cool stuff in, in messy ways. People are going to be like, why did you advocate for such a thing? anyway, whatever. Complicated people. Everyone's complicated. Famous tramps. Mm. One's named Horace Greeley. Horace nice. Greeley was a tramp printer. There's whole towns named after him. Well, there's one town at least. It's called Greeley, Colorado. Okay. Horace Greeley grew up poor as hell, and then as a a scrawny teenager, uh, maybe 13, maybe 15, depending on which book you read, he went off to become a printer. He spent 12 years as a tramp printer in the Mid-Atlantic, and then he moved to New York City. He founded the New York Tribune, which was the widest circulating paper in the country. He became a politician. At one point, he was a congressman. Actually, at one point, he ran for president and lost, but he helped found and possibly named the Republican Party. So, It's completely possible that the guy who named the Republican Party was a, um, well, he's a socialist. I'll get to that part. (laughs) He's a socialist vegetarian. Anyway, the Republican Party was the less offensive party at the time, right? It's important to understand Mm -hmm. about mid-19th century. Uh, And he was a radical Republican, which was the group that wanted an immediate end to slavery in contrast with moderate Republicans like Lincoln, who were like, well, we'll get there. And he fought against the Republicans embracing the anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, know-nothings into the party He might have coined the phrase, go West, young man, but the internet likes to argue about that. He was into like non-communist socialism of the Charles Fourier utopian socialist variety that I don't totally understand, so I'm not going to try and explain right now.
4: Yeah, I was going to say, what?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, okay, he was a socialist, but not in a way that makes, but not in a like Marxist way. Okay. Socialism was a lot more uh, diverse and, well, is a lot more diverse and interesting than people present it as. Um And in the 19th century, that was, like, more open. People understood socialism as a much more complicated field. Got it. He was a universalist, which is, like, a Christian who believes everyone gets into heaven, and is they tend to be the people who are, like, less assholes about it. Mm-hmm. He was also, like, basically a vegan straight edge. Nice. He followed a—I mean, I don't know, but he probably ate eggs and shit. But he followed a <laughs> diet of no meat, no alcohol, no caffeine, no tobacco— one downside of him is he was into Prohibition. I'm like, not wow. drinking rules, but telling other people they can't drink sucks. Mm-hmm. But he actually politically worked against the people, the parties of Prohibition, like the know-nothings. So he, whatever. He seemed all right, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very actively feminist, although in some ways, of course, he fell flat on that, but he gave a lot of speeches a- about the importance of like including women in labor unions and like all of this kind of stuff. At one point, Asshole racist New Yorkers, mostly Irish immigrants, I think, had a race riot in 1863 in response to the Civil War. And they they were like, we're going to go get Greeley because he's a, you know, anti-slavery guy. And so they, like, were stormed his offices. And most of the other editors and shit who were being called to be killed fled the city. But Greeley was like, eh, I'm not going to leave the city. And what he did is he just, like, put on a hat and walked out of his office and walked through the crowd and no one recognized him. Huh. and yeah. There's all these statues of him around and like a lot of history things that are like from like a pro-America point of view refer to him as like good-hearted but naive, which I think means he was a socialist and we don't know how to handle that Um, because he's very (laughs) important to U.S. history. He's like an incredibly important figure in U.S. history. And so he was naive in that he didn't follow whatever system. He was the Mm -hmm. first president of the New York Typographical Union. He wrote an editorial in support of women printers. He wasn't perfect. He did a bunch of shit that wasn't great. He opposed divorce reform and women's suffrage. Interesting guy. Horace Greeley. Tramp printer. Hmm. I love that it's possible the Republican Party was named by a sober, vegetarian, socialist hobo.
4: Yeah. Pretty cool.
1: And if you want a cool lifestyle like sober, socialist, hobo, you can buy a cool lifestyle with <laughs> lifestyle products like Carhartt <laughs> a lot of were wear Carhartts
4: <laughs> is that
1: true? that part is true but I'm really okay. not actually trying to this isn't a free ad for Carhartts this is me <laughs> trying to make a joke <laughs> please don't go out and buy Carhartts because of this but instead listen to these ads or don't you can press the fast forward button
0: I don't care
7: Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development,
1: Caitlin, any good ads in there for you? What were you most oh excited gosh. about? I well, let me tell you what. I
4: during that ad break, I logged on to carhart.com. Mm-hmm. I bought myself a jacket. <laughs> I got myself some some work pants. Uh-huh. A nice beanie. A beanie. Some mm. gloves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. All kinds, all manner of items. Yeah. For a while, I actually still think this is a cool outfit. But for a while, the the um crusty traveler uh, women's outfit of choice was you take a pair of Carhartt overalls and you cut you cut it into a mini skirt and resew it into a mini no, skirt. That's
3: fucking cool. That's yeah, no, always I, cool. Yeah, no, it rules. Period. Yeah, that's. I'm like cool. cool people who did cool stuff. That okay? Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Do a
1: whole episode on it, please, and thank you. I would. I, I mean. I really want to, at some point, someone's going to have to let me do an art exhibit at some fucking fancy gallery, and I want to, like, find all my crusty friends and get all of their clothes and, like, put them up in, like, pressed between glass of all the weird sewing that everyone does. Yes.
3: Oh, so, I mean, if you have a fancy gallery, reach out to Margaret. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So, you know who else was a hobo? (laughs) This isn't an ad break. This is me trying to get back into the script.
4: (laughs) Tell me
1: the father of American literature, Samuel Clemens, aka Mark Fucking Twain.
3: Oh hell yeah, that motherfucker! Well, so
1: and actually, I want to know because, like, I I had always heard like kind of mixed reviews on this guy, right? Oh, I know nothing besides he wrote. Uh, I'm pretty sure H-Huck he wrote Finn the screenplay
4: and- for Huck Finn, starring Elijah Wood.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was the screenplay guy. Yeah, he's from the uh, 19 yeah uh, 1990s. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know when that movie came out. The 1990s. Oh, well, or no, I did the know. Eight, actually, the
4: 1890s. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The uh, 1541,
1: I believe. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mark fucking Twain, he was a tramp printer, and he is interesting. Like Greeley, there's still more I want to understand about him. And these ones got kind of the skim treatment. I didn't go out and read autobiographies like biographies about these people. I read like a ton of articles about them and tried to cross-reference and try and figure out what's true, but I didn't, like, really deep-dive them. He's very American in his politics, but he basically gets more and more interesting and radical and leftist as he gets older. He has this quote, there's no good government at all and none is possible. Um, and that started in a sort of, like, kind of American libertarian-ish kind of way of, like, yay free markets and government, leave everyone alone, whatever. Mm-hmm. But he was, a once again, in this kind of weird... Socialisty or confusing way, and I'm not trying to call him a socialist specifically. He was like a markets guy for a lot of his life, but he wasn't a capitalism guy. Um, he didn't like welfare, but he also hated plutocrats and monopolies and capitalists. And he started off all stars and stripes America, rah, 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 and said lots of not great stuff about a lot of stuff. Uh, he also once fought for the Confederacy for three weeks, but he did desert yeah. and I think mm. fighting for 3 weeks and deserting was like kind what, of like
4: a cake or like a pie. Sorry. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um yeah, he was the pastry chef and he poisoned <laughs> them all. Now he yeah, so it's like during the Confederacy if you like lived in the south and were white and a man, you were like expected to fight for the Confederacy or they'd like burn everything you've ever loved. Mhm. Including possibly you. And so he fought for 3 weeks and then he was like fuck this and he uh he fled to I think to Nevada. And whatever, he ended up anti-imperialist and anti-racist near the end of his life. Uh, And he would talk about how the Emancipation Proclamation set the black man free and the white man too, because basically how evil white people were being as a result of um, the system of slavery. Mm -hmm. He was a tramp printer before he was a riverboat pilot. When he was a tramp printer, one time he decided to play a prank on another tramp printer. So he got, I'm sure you've done this kind of prank before, Caitlin. Sophie, everyone's done Mm -hmm. this prank. You go get a whole ass real human skeleton Mm -hmm. and you put it in the guy's bed while he's sleeping. Mm -hmm. So then he wait when he wakes up, he's sleeping next to or possibly cuddling a a real. How did you know? I did that
3: yesterday to Jamie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Brave. Well, (laughs) that guy. Who was actually Jamie? What, that Lattis. is so
3: aggressive. First of all, like what are I we, know. <laughs> also, like just re- I, you have a real human skeleton. I mean, there are just so many. Th-
1: yeah, because he's a ho- he's a tramp. Oh, so he's clearly yeah. not going to his own closet of skeletons. Mm-mm. He clearly went to someone else's closet of skeletons, probably a graveyard.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Went and got mm-hmm. a skeleton. Can you imagine him? He's just drunk and he's like, "I got an idea. <laughs> this is this is my plan." Guys, guys, guys! This will be hilarious. Yes. Yeah. And then, uh, so the guy wakes up next to a skeleton, and he's like, huh. And he goes and he sells the skeleton for $7. <laughs> and he gets good and drunk off of it. Nice. So, joke's on you, Samuel Clemens. Near the end of his life, he gets more and more radical. He spent his last days doing shit like writing pamphlets against various imperialists in his usual sarcastic tone. In his essay, The Conquest of the Philippines, Twain writes about a time when U.S. soldiers massacred uh, some Moros people in the Philippines by firing down on them uh, from the ring of an extinct volcano, uh, which is a thing that happened that he was responding Mm. to. Quote, The enemy numbered 600, including women and children, and we abolished them utterly, leaving not not even a baby alive to cry for its dead mother. This is uncomparably the greatest victory that is, was ever achieved by the Christian soldiers of the United States. Headline, death list is now 900. I was never so enthusiastically proud of the flag till now. That's sarcasm. See, that is different than, oh. actually, it might be sardonic.
4: Sardonic sarcasm. What's the difference? We don't actually want to know yeah, people don't who are like, us. um, actually.
1: Yeah. <laughs> tell the person sitting next to you. Say, or, Margaret is a fool. She does not know the mm-hmm. difference between sarcasm and sardonatry. Sardolatry, which is like idol- Sar- idolatry, only about mm-hmm. the sardonic god, Caitlin Durante. Of Me, a sardonic
4: god. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That sounded like an earnest thanks. Yeah, sorry, I meant thanks. Yeah. Okay, good. I was a little concerned. (laughs) Samuel Clemens did more than just write against imperialism. He spent years as the vice president of the American Anti-Imperialist League. Once he got money from his writing, he used it to pay for several black people's education. He was friends with Helen Keller, the radical socialist and IWW member who was also a disability rights icon.
5: Mm Mm-hmm
1: for 16 years by the early 20th century he left the republican party to do his own weird thing and referred to both the republicans and the democrats as insane and that each party was incapable each party was able to understand that the other party was fucked up but neither party could see that they were fucked up which isn't wrong and i think it's still <laughs> like a... <laughs> it's, yeah he supported the the revolution of 19 basically i was like kind of expecting cuz like the stuff I've heard is that he, the way he handles race is one very different from how people would try and handle race now, and two, a lot of it was like not great, right? And a lot of his writing, mm. and so I was like aware of a lot of that stuff, and I wasn't aware of this other stuff, and so I started doing this research about him. He supported the revolution of 1905 in Russia, like wholeheartedly, uh, especially the willingness to do violence against the czar. He had mm. no time for liberal half measures. He wrote, "Quote." What is the Tsar of Russia but a house of fire in the midst of a city of 80 millions of inhabitants? Yet instead of extinguishing him, together with his nest and system, the liberation parties are all anxious to merely cool him down a little and keep him. It seems to me that this is illogical, idiotic, in fact. Suppose you had this granite-hearted, bloody-jawed maniac of Russia loose in your house, chasing the helpless women and little children, your own. What would you do with him, supposing you had a shotgun, well, he has loosened your house, Russia, and with your shotgun in hand, you stand thinking up ways of trying to modify him. When we consider not that not even the most responsible English monarch ever yielded back a single public right until it was wrenched from them by bloody violence, is it rational to suppose that gentler methods can win privileges in Russia?
5: Hmm.
1: And then final Mark Twain quote I'm going to use for this is, In 1902, he said, let us abolish policemen who carry clubs and revolvers and put in a squad of poets armed to the teeth with poems on spring and love. So... Wow. I kind of like him. And he was a tramp printer. And then later at one point, another writer, William Dean Howells, asked Mark Twain, being like, how should I write about tramp printers? And Mark Twain wrote back, hands off, incomprehensible to lay readers. Ooh. (laughs) Um... And so here I am trying to, whatever. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so interesting. Okay. Yeah. So those are two it's of the two of the famous tramp printers. Mm-hmm. I guess the neat—I didn't really talk about Mark Twain as a printer and any of that, but he did that for a while. That's that's what I got.
4: Well, I think the takeaway there is that if you start out as a tramp printer, you're gonna go on to do some, yeah,
1: interesting stuff. Yeah, all of them did. Yeah. Uh, as long as they lived past 28. Yeah. <laughs> there was a second wave, a sort of second golden age of the tramp printer after World War II when train typesetters were in short supply. And it was a different thing. It was a different lifestyle. More couples w- where both people were tramp printers would travel with their kids in like RVs and shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, tramps would stay at motels instead of on the floor of the job. All night diners replaced, replaced saloons. And the second golden age ran up until the 1970s and it used the same union system, literally the same union, the ITU. They could show up at any Mm -hmm. printer, skip the personnel department and work whatever shifts they wanted. And the typographical union, it survived the move to linotype, but it didn't survive the move to digital printing. The earliest Mm -hmm. electric typesetting machines, the teletypesetter or the TTS, were referred to by some people who were really excited about them, some bosses. They were like, This is the electric man that sets type and doesn't strike. Uh, Some of the earliest applications of computers, actually, was to hook them up to these teletype machines to calculate hyphenation and justification settings, which were like kind of like the last skilled parts of some of the typesetting. Uh So the operators didn't need to be highly trained. Jobs got scarcer. More and more journeymen decided to stick around in home guard rather than risk not finding a job in the next town over. And then phototype setting took over hot metal type setting, and I could not easily tell you about phototype setting even though I've been vaguely involved in it at various points in my life. I don't know how to easily explain it, and I'm not great at understanding it. Okay. This means that you no longer have the squirt, right? You no longer have the, like, if you do this wrong, hot lead will burn everything. Uh Uh-huh. So even more so now people don't need trained, skilled people. Computers right. kind of take over everything. Editors of papers start coming out of the university system instead of off the shop floor. Even union shops stop wanting tramp printers. One by one, they all stopped accepting the traveler's card. By, eight, by 1986, tramp printing was over. And the union was, too, the same year. It merged with the Communication Workers of America, ending its run as the oldest union in the U.S. Wow. With the death of the union, wages dropped. And by, In 1971, a hot metal comp- compositor was getting $200 a week, which is about a salary of about $76,000 a year in today money. Mm-hmm. By 1975, four years later, the same amount of work was $47,000 a year. So it was like barely, your, your, your wage got halved
5: mm-hmm.
1: um, with the union gone. Hmm. And I want to go out with a story about one more random cool tramp. This is a, a, a second golden age tramp. Mm-hmm. big Marie Emery, one of the last tramp printers. She was over six feet tall. She was loud and brash and cool as hell. She always blew her money on, like, fancy clothes and jewelry and shit, but she didn't actually have that money, so she, like, pawned them the next day. <laughs> um, She'd, like, wear them around, be seen in them, and be like, all right, never mind. Go, go take them back. <laughs>
3: that is such a flex. I know. I'm I know. I'm so excited. Tell us more.
1: Uh, she gave away money constantly to her down-and-out compatriots. A foreman asked what she could do. She, like, showed up at a shop as a tramp printer. Like, well, what can you do? Because she's a woman or whatever. So she poked mm. him on the shoulder and said, I can do anything a goddamn man can do except piss in a bottle. Mm. Which is yes. very just, yeah. She liked to marry tramp printers who are about to die and then become their sole beneficiaries.
3: <laughs> oh, my God. She's amazing. <laughs> okay. So, as, yeah. As, as, Shireen, as Shireen would say, <laughs> Big Slay. <sleigh. laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, and so she lived large as best as she could off of, you know, that. No shame. And to quote the Charles Overbeck book, The Tramp Printers, quote, she continued tramping into the 1970s, but the FBI came for her at 72. In, not in 1972, but when she's 72 years old. Alleging oh, well, okay. that she was drawing a deceased husband's checks from a Navy pension, Social Security off two other dead pr- printer husbands, her own Social Security check, and a full union wages as a proofreader, and using food stamps to pay an undocumented worker to clean clear her trailer. Clean. Sorry. Sounds legit to me. Yeah. No. Uh the, the quote from Charles Overbeck ends, a first class tramp to the end. Hell yeah. <laughs> nice. And that, dear listeners, specifically Sophie and Caitlin, is the tramp printers.
4: Woo-hoo. I love it. Thanks for sharing.
1: Yeah. Thanks for
3: Um, Caitlin, thank think listening. you're being really so funny the entire time, which yeah. is why you are miraculously the healthiest person on earth.
4: I'm cured. Um do you have anything you would like to plug? Oh, just the same stuff as usual. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter and I guess TikTok, even though I barely understand it, at Caitlin Durante. Mm-hmm. Listen to the Bechtel Cast, uh, the movie podcast I do with Jamie Loftus. We're going on tour oh, Woo. Yeah. in um, in the west coast of the U.S. We'll be doing shows in L.A., San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle Love that. in late January, early February. And aren't you guys also performing at SF Sketchfest? Yeah, that's the San Francisco show. That's so cool. That sounds February sketchy. On February 1st. It's uh-huh. so sketchy. And guess what? Classic San Francisco movie we're doing. George of the Jungle. Hot. <laughs> first of all. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're welcome.
3: Love that. Um, Margaret, and you have a, a new book. Would you like to plug that?
1: Well, imagine. It's called George of the Jungle, yeah, right? It's, it's okay. probably. Cool. Imagine if you believed that the government owed you a woman as a public service, uh-huh. and you were already there. I already do invited to move to an island where mm. that would be met. Your mm-hmm. the government would provide. Just kidding! It's a trap. It's a prison. All of the men who believe that they are owed women as a public good are trapped on Incel Island, and then our two Which protagonists, is the title of the book, must infiltrate is- inful- Incel Island, and then now here's the title escape from Incel Island Mm. it's pre-orderable
3: yeah I was going to say where can people pre-order and what can they get with that pre-order
1: tangledwilderness.org is the publisher and you can get a free poster if you pre-order and my gratitude not personally expressed and
3: Magpie's gratitude which is priceless
1: priceless. yeah exactly can't buy that well you literally can you can buy it by pre-ordering my book (laughs) but for everything that money can't buy there's money
3: Yeah. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, the story of cool people who did cool stuff. Okay. Bye now. Bye, everyone. Bye. -bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.